Amen. Amen. I am hiring that brother to read every time I preach. He's just anointed and becomes one with that text. Amen. Well, good morning, uh, saints. My name is Will Gant, and I'm here to explain and express what's in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 39. And it's interesting because it's just like a, a roller coaster to me. I, I'm, I'm feeling myself slowly going up to that hill, and then you go real fast and hit that curve, and that's what it feels like this morning. And I, and I, and I love it the way my brother read this text because he read it with that spirit. This morning, we're going to talk about what Paul is using as, a, as an end cap to what we've been learning in Romans chapter 8. Some would say that this is the greatest chapter in the New Testament and maybe all of the Bible. This is an amazing chapter that Paul has penned for us. And I hope, my prayer, is that as we work through this text, that you feel the same spirit that Paul used to write this text. There's some of you here this morning who may not, by your own assessment, be Christians. Because you may think that the things that you have gone through in your life are so wicked and so heinous that God cannot save you. I'm here this morning to tell you that Almighty God can save anyone He pleases because He uses everything for your good and your glory. Even those things that you may seem or you may think are, sense, are, are senseless and sinful, there may be some of you here who, are, who would say that you are Christians, but you come to church and hope that you're invisible because the things that you have gone through before you were saved and even after you were saved may be too embarrassing, too hurtful, and that God can't use you. Well, I can tell you that that was me, that I was embarrassed by my testimony, that I thought that you are so clean, you're so Christian, you're so holy that if you knew who I really was, that you wouldn't want to have any part of me. But what I learned early on in my Christian faith is that your testimony is a testament to the power of God. That he saves anyone. He uses everything for his purposes. Amen? Amen? I think this is a good time right here and go to the Lord in prayer. Amen? Father God, I pray that you would be with us here this morning. As we celebrate the historical event of Pentecost. Lord, I pray that like on that day, your spirit falls on us here this morning to enlighten us, to teach us, to convict us, 
and to let us know that we are loved by you. My prayer this morning, Lord, is <coughs> speak to us, Lord. Your servant is listening. These things we ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen. In our text this morning, we may believe we've sinned our way out from under the love of Christ. Or we've been separated too long from God's church. Or the circumstances in our life are proof that God is displeased with us. Paul is saying in our text today that those who have union with Christ have assurance of victory in Christ. And those in Christ are guaranteed of their security. And Paul does this by asking a series of questions. The first is found in Romans 8.31. Under the heading of God is your protector. God is your protector. Here is the text. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? The undeniable affirmation, this undeniable truth is that God is for us. God is for the believers. He called us, he keeps us, and he will preserve us until the end. Amen? Nothing will stop you from ultimately being glorified by God. Nothing. So the question is, if God is for us, who can be against us? The point is not that no one can be against us, right? Because the believer has enemies. We know we have enemies. We have the devil, we have the flesh, and we have the world. The point being driven at is this, that there can be no effective opposition to the one who is in Christ Jesus. Because God himself is our protector. God himself is the one who keeps you, who watches over you. If you are in Christ, you are in the Father's hands, and nothing can snatch you out of your Father's hands. There can be no effective opposition. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Paul is driving the truth that Christians have no fear of the future. We have no fear of the future. Is that even possible? Think about it. We all have fears. I personally have fears of heights. If you ever hear of me falling off a bridge or falling off a, a high building or, or anything like that, know that I was murdered. <laughs> I just don't do it. I remember, I don't know if you've been to, Dis I think it was Disneyland, they have this thing uh, where you sit in a, in a chair, it's inside, and you just rise up and it's like you're in a balloon, and the wind is blowing and you get sprayed water on, and you're just only like six feet off the ground, but it seems like you're flying, I didn't like that. And my wife was saying, this isn't real, you're only six foot off the ground. I'm like, I know, I know, but the sensation is the same. Fear is real. 
we're not talking about just things that we're afraid of. Spiders, heights, dogs. We're not talking about that. What he's talking about is the fear of the future, the fear of situations where you think that you will lose your salvation or that God is not going to bring you to the end, which is glorification. That things in your life can separate you from God. That persecution can be so thick, so hot, so painful that you won't be able to endure it and you'll be separated from God by denying him. But we know God is bigger than anything that can threaten us. His presence, his power are with us no matter what, and who promises and he promises to transform any of the things that we are afraid of into an agent of his purpose. The one who is in Christ, the sovereign God, is our protector, and no opposition is effective enough to stop God's plan of glorifying you. Someone needs to hear this this morning. That God is in your corner. That God is actively working in your life. That he is using everything, everything, your sin, your love, your resources, everything for your good and glory. He doesn't just save us and then leave us. That he saves us and he's with us all our life working in and through us, in control of all your situations, all your trials, all your triumphs. The sovereign God is our protector. In this life, to some degree, you will suffer. But we are sustained by the hope of our ultimate good, which is our glorification. Our ultimate good is not situational. Our ultimate good is eternal. We take comfort in the promise that what is happening to us is controlled and directed by God for our good. It's the whole point of Romans 8.28. The whole point. We will not always understand it. We, not, we will not only always enjoy the things we are experiencing, but we can rest assured that we will not experience anything that God does not allow and use for our present and future good. Our suffering, our groaning, our hope, our joy are all designed for our ultimate good. God is in control, and nothing is beyond his power. Now, there's a text in Philippians Paul says this, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, there are times when many people will say, you should be happy, or you should be joyous and thankful that God woke you up this morning. That's true. But if God didn't wake you up this morning, that's still a blessing because you're in glory. How do we have a life 
like Paul is stating in Philippians. I think the truth is what we're teaching this morning, what's embedded in Romans 8, and that is to know that God is with you, keeping you to live as Christ. I live my life for Christ. I live my life with this love relationship with Christ, but when, if I do that, if I understand what he's doing with my life, when I die, then we get to say, gain. Death is not the end for us. But there's only one person who has died and come back, and that's Jesus. And he's trying to explain to us the majesty and beauty and glory of what death is. It is not the end. It is not something that needs to be feared. It's something that needs to be embraced if you have the right relationship with him here on earth. In Hebrews, it talks about the fear that unbelievers have. One of the fears, probably the biggest fear, is the fear of death. They all fear death. We don't fear death. Death is not something that we are afraid of. It is something that we embrace because we know one day we will see him and be with him and be like him. So we don't fear in Psalm 34, 4, it says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. There could be no effective opposition because God himself is our protector. But God is also your provider and advocate. Romans 8, 32 through 34, listen to the word of the Lord he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? This is a beautiful, wonderful text. The undeniable fact stated negatively is God did not spare his own son. God demonstrated his love toward us in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. There is never a moment, never a time that God holds back anything from us. We need to fulfill his purposes and to conform us to his image of his son. He gives to us because he gave up his son. He did not hold him back. Now, the question on the table as I read this was, how much does God love Jesus? Did you ever think about that? How much do you think God actually loves Jesus? Well, the Bible tells us that that is the, not only the expression of love, but the highest form of love in the universe is his love for the Son. He loves the Son more than anything, and he gave up his Son for you. I thought about this. This embodiment of love. 
says in 1 John, we love, we love, our expression, our definition of love is based on this act of the Father giving up the Son. That is the ultimate form of love that we have. And you have to personalize that. He didn't just give up his son. He gave up his son for you and me. This is amazing. Think about this. Those of you who have children, would you give up any of your children to be in relationship with another person? Even someone that you love. But your enemy? That's what God did. That picture is unbelievable. It's amazing that he would do that for you and me. Don Flavio says this, and it's it's a little long, but hang in there with me because I think there's some gems in here. How is it imaginable that God should withhold after this spirituals or temporals from his people? How shall he not call them effectively, justify them freely, sanctify them thoroughly, and glorify them eternally? How shall he not clothe them, feed them, protect them, and deliver them? Surely, if he would not spare his own son one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery, it can never be imagined that he ever, that he ever should after this deny or withhold anything from his people. For whose sake all this was suffered, any mercies, any comfort, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. I think he captures the magnitude of what it took to save you and to bring you to glory. He is not going to withhold anything good for you or to you because of the price he had to make to get you. Does that make sense? That the price was so high to be in relationship with you that there's nothing that he's going to withhold from you. Amen? There could be no depriving because God is your provider. He provides everything for you, but it gets better. Christ is also your advocate. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who was at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for you? Now, this is a series of questions that Paul wants you to understand. He wants you to have these answers. The undeniable truth is that there can be no accusation entertained. And the point, again, is not that there's going to be um, any accusations given because we know that we have the devil who is the accuser of the brethren. In fact, if the devil was to accuse believers, his accusations can actually be true. He could make a solid case against you and I. Now, I was just thinking about this. That I think this is an illustration. I think this is just showing us that Satan is act actively working against you and I. Because if you just took today from midnight, from 12 and 1 second 
this morning until right now, just in this room, there's a multitude of sins that he could accuse you of. And then the rest of the day, the day, there's another multitude of sins of omission and commission that he would constantly be in God's face just from this group. As beautiful as you look right now, you are all still sinning. I think this is a picture that Satan is working actively against believers. That you have an enemy who's actively working in your conscience, in your mind, in your memory, accusing you of sin. And, and God knows this. And he's, I believe Satan is saying, look at those people. You love Jesus so much. You, you're, the price you paid to be in relationship with them is so high. But look at them. Look at the sinners that they are. Look how they still abuse your love and your grace. So the point is not that there can be no accusation made. The point is that they will, there will be no accusation entertained. Why? Because God is the one who justified you. Christ is the one who died for you. And his payment on your behalf appeased and pleased the Father, satisfied the Father's wrath. And on top of that, Christ is interceding for you. He is our advocate. The picture I love for this is we're standing in a courtroom. And God has in the scriptures, it uses this, this picture of a cup of wrath. And you stand before the Father and he's, he's already placed judgment on you. So when you stand before him, the cup that he has, he dumps out this cup of wrath and it is empty. There's no more wrath for you and I because Jesus paid it all. Amen. The, those, those sins that you committed at 12 midnight to right now were paid for. The sins of, of, it may just be the sins of omission or the sins that you're thinking about, but they're still sins. No wrath. No wrath. And Jesus stands before the Father, reminding him he's justified. There's no wrath for him, Father. And Satan and our conscience still try to accuse us of being unworthy of salvation. Because we still have sin in our lives. But God has passed his verdict, and that verdict is that we're justified. And once the judge has spoken, the case is closed. All accusations against believers are dismissed. No wrath for you. We're saved by Christ. We're sustained by Christ. We are kept to the end by Christ. And whether you've been a Christian for 10 years, 50 years, or 10 days, guess what? You stand justified. Your plea is that Christ died, and he died for me, and he is our advocate on our behalf, actively working for us. Amen? It's a beautiful truth. When we take communion, sometimes we just walk up to the tray and we take the cracker and just pop it in our mouth like it's a tic-tac 
we don't take that moment to just say, thank you, Jesus. You should have killed me for the things that I thought and did just this morning. But because of your great sacrifice for me, I'm justified. See, we don't have a box for that because we don't have a picture window into hell. But one day we will know. We'll have a box for eternity. And we'll understand the magnitude of the gift that God has given us. But what he's trying to get us to do in this text is to get an understanding of it now. So that we can say, to live is Christ. So when we die, we can say, gain. Nothing can separate us from Christ. The third question, Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he lists possible separators. There's, there's these things that, that we may think can separate us. And, and the backdrop here is this. This is what we always need to remember is that Paul is writing to the Christians at Rome, in Rome, because Nero, who was the emperor at the time, was about to pour out wrath on the church like it has never seen before, in a violent and merciless way. One of the things that he used to like to do is tie Christians to a pole, dip them in tar, and set them ablaze while he had parties. They were his light. They were about to go through this. They were being rounded up. And what Paul is doing is saying, don't be afraid. Don't worry. Even though Nero is pouring out this wrath on the church, Jesus got you. He's got you. And he's not going to let you go. And I know this seems Crazy to think like this, but this is what I've done for you, that when you pass into glory, you are going to be glorified with me. What can separate us? Tribulation, distress, persecution, nakedness or the sword. The point is, for those who are in Christ, for those of you here who are Christians, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ, that you can be assured, that you can be guaranteed of your security. So whether it's social tribulation, strong outside pressure, distress, inward hardships, persecution, harassment, all of these things are a result of attacks. Whether it's hunger, poverty, lack, nakedness, various physical threats, or even martyrdom. Can any of those things separate us from the love of God, from the love of Christ? The answer is no. And see, here in America, we don't really see this. Most of the persecution comes from probably internally. Our own guilt 
and shame that happens. But in other countries, this is real right now. They're still being killed. They're still being rounded up. Christians are in very tragic situations around the globe. We are in a very special place, but that still doesn't remove us from the text. Saying nothing, friends, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You are secure. I don't know how many of you were raised in a loving home, but there's just something about knowing that you are loved. There's just something comforting about knowing you're loved. If you're in a marriage relationship and you come home and you have a hard day knowing that that person that lives with you as your spouse loves you. There is something just, it does something to you. And this text is telling us you should feel that way about Jesus. That you should feel that embrace. You should feel that warmth. You should feel that comfort of one who loves you above all else. And he's working actively in your life to keep you and to bring you to glory. Again, Paul's not saying if you're in Christ that you are so secure that you're not going to experience any of these things. What he is saying is it's not an easy road. Christianity's not easy because life is hard. It's a life of tribulation. It's a life of distress. It's a life of persecution. And all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It is a life of danger and even possible death. But the point is, you can experience those things and the suffering that you experience is always controlled by God. So there are, if there's any conceivable power that can prevent the believer from arriving to the ultimate glorification, is there? The answer is no. The answer is no. There can be no separation. Is there anything that is powerful enough to stop and prevent the one who has union with Christ from arriving at that glorification in Christ? The answer is no. Nothing can stop the sovereign God. Nothing can stop and prevent and separate you from Christ and his love. But sometimes we think, well, how do I know? How do I know that, I, that I'm in this love relationship with God? I, I heard a story once of R.C. Sproul was at a conference and, and an older woman came up to him and said, you know, Dr. Sproul, I just have this problem that weighs, me, weighs on me every day. And, the, and the, the problem is, I don't know if I love God enough. I don't know. I understand what he's done for me, but I don't know if I love God enough. And Dr. Sproul responded to her. He said, that's the wrong question. The question is not if you love God enough. The question is, do you love him at all? Because unbelievers don't love God. If you love him a little bit, that comes from God, 1 John. So you can be assured that you are in that relationship if you have love for God. You're in the text. It's not because of you and your abilities. 
It's not because of your power. It's because of Christ. And he concludes with this. The Christian's unwavering conviction is really what he's driving at. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. And the idea is there is this overwhelming conquering that has happened on our behalf. We just don't conquer. We overwhelmingly conquer. What what does that mean? What does that mean? I love John Piper explains it like this. A conqueror defeats his enemy, but one who is more than a conqueror subjugates his enemy. This is what God has done on our behalf. A conqueror nullifies the purposes of his enemy. One who is more than a conqueror makes the enemy serve his own purposes. A conqueror strikes down his foe. One who is more than a conqueror makes his foe his slave. God not only delivers us from our suffering, but he makes our pain and our suffering his slave. Our our suffering and our pain serve God's purposes. They become servants of the Most High. Affliction is made the servant of God in his purposes. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17 says this, This light and momentary affliction is preparing or working or bringing about for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This light and momentary affliction. Saints, anything that you're going through, right, it doesn't matter how great it seems, is still light and momentary. What Satan meant for evil, God uses for good because God uses these attacks to work in us an even greater weight of glory than we would have experienced without them. I have a friend who was at the the edge of divorce. Horrific things happened in his relationship. But God restored his marriage. And now they have a fruitful marriage. And I remember I was about to teach a class or or, or preparing for a sermon, and I asked him, I said, what did you learn from that situation? And this is what he told me. He said, Will, that was the hardest thing I ever had to experience in my life. He said, but if I look back, that is the the single event that turned my faith. I grew more spiritually during that time than ever in my life. And though I would have never elected to go through something like that, God used the most painful situation I could ever go through for my good. That's what God does for you and I. If you look back on your life, those premier spiritual moments typically were through hardships. So what Paul is telling us and encouraging us is these hardships, don't be afraid of them. Embrace them because God is at work. It is proof that God is the king and he's over your situations and he is working in your life. The invisible God is now visible. Dear friends, we are overwhelmingly conquerors because of Christ. 
Whether it's in life or death, there's no angels, no rulers, no things present, no things to come, no powers, no height nor depth. And in just in case he missed something, he says, no, anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And he says this because it is our default that we think that something is going to be great enough, great enough to separate us. And he keeps driving this point home. There is nothing. I got you. Our outcome is sure and certain that we will be victorious. Saints, do you have that conviction? Do you have that persuasion in Christ that you are secure? Do you know the peace and rest that comes from that union with Christ? Such that in whatever state you're in, listen, you have learned to be content. Is your confidence in self or is it in Christ alone? There's an old hymn that says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. These beautiful words that your hope is not built on a thing but on a person. It means you'll make it through anything because he carries you through everything. We're about to take communion. And my hope is that in this feeble way that I work through the text, that somehow you see Jesus just a little bigger, just a little brighter, a little clearer. So when you come to this table, this is a picture of your union with Christ, that he gave his body and blood for you to be in relationship with you. While you were his enemy, he did this for you. And now, you are guaranteed eternal life. Think about that as we take these elements. Think about who you were before Christ and who you are now. Then think about how actively he is working in your life right now, today. Loving you, encouraging you, teaching you. That's what you think about when you take communion. If you're here and you, by your own accord, would say that you're not a Christian, let this be a time where you give serious thought to what it means to be in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for loving me when there was nothing in me that was desirable. But you chose to bring me into your kingdom. And you've done that for every saint that's here. And that I pray, I pray that we understand that everything in our life works together for good. And that the love that we have for you is something that is a gift from you. And I hope that it helps us to understand how you will carry us through this life 
into the next. These things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.